Well, I'd like to ask you to take your Bible to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. We are continuing our little journey through this book, a story of God's gracious, radical, and even scandalous grace. Can you imagine a scenario in your mind where God's grace could ever be offensive or God's mercy could ever scandalize? And if you have a hard time thinking about that in your mind, the book of Jonah may be the very thing God will use to help you see the beauty of scandalous grace. We all love mercy. I love it. You love it. We love grace when we get it. We find ourselves sometimes in an ocean of pain, swimming around in a storm, sometimes of our own making. And when God shows up and gives us mercy and shows us grace, we rejoice. But the little book of Jonah talks about a very different time in our life, and that time uh, comes when God shows mercy or extends grace, and we have a problem with that. You know, I think sometimes each of us, if we're really honest, can go to a place in the very back corner of our heart, and we would find there a little room, and we get in that room, and in that room there are at least one or two people who have hurt us or have done something offensive to us or said something about us. And while we pray for those people and we are careful in what we say about those people, Uh, we are actually convinced that they deserve judgment. And we're very convinced that there's going to come a day in this life or the next when they're going to get it. God is going to make sure to judge them. And then all of a sudden we find out that God gave them mercy. And there's something that happens in our heart. You know, oh, we, we see each other and we're like, oh, praise God, amen. You ever do that? You ever have those moments? I call it your Jesus face. You put your Jesus face on. It's like, amen, God is good all the time. Praise God. And inside you're like, ah. And that's Jonah. This is exactly where we find Jonah. We find Jonah at a place where the good and the perfect and the acceptable will of God that we read about in Romans 12 that we quote to ourselves in verses 1 and 2, that good and perfect and acceptable will of God has come to Jonah, and it isn't good, and it isn't acceptable to him. And so before we uh, jump on Jonah and decide, you know, what a wicked guy he is, I think we need to make sure we take the time to understand who he is and what he's really like and what's going on in his world. Because I think we're going to find, as we study the life of Jonah in these six verses, we're going to find ourselves in that boat right next to him in some cases. So let's talk for a minute as we jump into this text. First and foremost, who was Jonah? He was an Israelite. He was a member of God's chosen people. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was somebody that lived in a special nation that belonged uniquely to God. Back in the Old Testament, if you wanted to know where God's people were, they all lived in a particular place on the planet, and they all lived within a particular set of moral and theological and political boundaries. They were known as Israel. They were known as God's covenant 
people. Their ancestor was David. Their king was, uh, was Abraham. Their king was David. Their constitution was the very law of God itself, the law that God gave to Moses. And if you lived in that kingdom, it didn't get much better. The queen of Sheba came to that kingdom one day to address Solomon, and after she looked around and she saw everything, she said, Solomon, if I, if I hadn't seen this with my own eyes, I wouldn't have believed it. And so Jonah was an Israelite, and everybody who lived in the boundaries, theological boundaries, social boundaries, political boundaries that Jonah lived in, knew exactly who God was, And they know exactly what he was like because they had received the good gift of his word and they had been given time after time after time deep tastes of his grace and of his mercy. Even when they sinned grievously, more often than not, they experienced God's grace and received his mercy. And Jonah, of all people, knew this well. Because earlier in his life, in 2 Kings 14, we saw this last week, God had sent him to bring mercy once again to these people that belonged to him. And he did it through one of their most wicked kings, a king named Jeroboam II. And God acknowledges in that text in 2 Kings 14 that his people deserved mercy. Nobody was repenting. Nobody was saying, God, we're sorry. God just looked down and he saw the affliction that was happening because of the sinning of his people. And in the midst of all of this sinning, with nobody giving a thought to God, God said, you know what? I'm going to send them mercy. It was almost scandalous. I mean, if you really thought about it, it was theologically offensive. Almost. How could God extend mercy even to his own people, when they kept sinning and nobody was giving a thought to God and nobody was listening to a word Jonah was preaching and God says, Jonah, I'm sending you back to them. Go talk to Jeroboam and tell them that there's mercy. So Jonah knew all about mercy. If you met Jonah in the marketplace at Samaria, or maybe even in Jerusalem, he might shake his head at the spiritual darkness of the nation. He might be extremely troubled at the way the people of Israel were disregarding God and just headlong disobeying his word. He would have been deeply disturbed by the wanton wickedness of the people who should know better. He ran into you at the marketplace as he urged you to pray for Israel, encouraged you to lobby to get the Ten Commandments back in the public squares. He might actually hand you a Make Israel Great Again button. Pin it on your robe, or maybe a mega sticker to put on your chariot. Jonah was a prophet who loved God. He was a patriot who loved his nation. He was eager to denounce the sins that were being committed in Israel and and pronounce strong warnings of God's judgment, but he also rejoiced in the providential mercy of God and held that out to God's people in hope should they repent. This is the whole basis for 2 Chronicles 7.14. Jonah was all about God's mercy, and he was all about God's grace to rebels as long as it was his rebels. 
as long as those rebels belonged to Jonah's tribe. But when God showed up and said to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to take a word of mercy, a word of warning, to a nation whose policies you you despise, whose religious idolatry you denounce, and whose moral values you distance yourself from, and all rightly so, Jonah sat in stunned silence. I'm not saying there wasn't a conversation going on in his heart, but there was nothing coming out of his mouth. Nothing. He reacted in righteous indignation and moral indignation because the good and the perfect will of God was totally unacceptable to him. Now think about this. Here's a man who was a prophet his entire life. He served God faithfully. He knew God truly. He spoke for God authoritatively. And all of a sudden, as we're introduced to him, for the first time in Jonah's life, he's running. And he's running from God. He's running from the God he knew, the God he loved, and the God he had served. And before we, um, like I said, before we judge Jonah too harshly, remember that despite our past service to God, any one of us, our present standing before God, our personal claim to spirituality, in spite of all of those things, we can spend a lifetime serving God. We can spend a lifetime thinking we know God's plan. And then one, God, one day God sends word to us that he's going to do something that is so scandalous to us or so offensive to us that we pull a Jonah. We get up and we do exactly what Jonah did. We fold our tent, we close up our heart, and we look for the nearest ship to the farthest place we can get away from whatever it is that God wants to do. And you say, oh, Pastor Sam, that'll never happen to me. Maybe it already has. Pastor Sam, that would never happen in a church like this. It happened to Jonah in the middle of a covenant nation experiencing unmitigated and and, and unboundaried mercy from God. It happened to Jonah. And if it could happen to Jonah, it could happen to me. And so that's why this book is so powerful. So let's look at four things I want us to see this morning out of these six verses that will help us understand and spot what happens in, in our hearts when God's mercy scandalizes us. I want you to notice that in verses 1 and 2, we have the receiving of God's word. The book opens in a sudden and surprising way. Now it happened. If you could read it the way that, uh, that the, the Hebrew writer wrote it, it, it literally says this. Now it happened that the word of Yahweh came. And immediately, the first person you meet in the book is not Jonah. It's about God. The main character in the book is actually God. And so God introduces himself, and and you meet him by his covenant name. He's not named here as Elohim, the God of the heavens and the earth. We're going to find out later that he is that in the book. But here he's introduced to you as the God of Israel. He's introduced to you as the God who makes promises. He's introduced to you as the God who keeps his word. He's introduced to you as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And whatever he's up to, just the way that the book is introduced to you, no other prophetic book starts this way, you realize that whatever this 
covenant-making, promise-keeping, mercy-giving, grace-showing God is up to, it is stunning. It's about to be huge. Something unexpected and something surprising is coming your way. And the faithful God that we're introduced to has a faithful word that he wants to give to somebody who's called the son of Amittai. The word Amittai is literally the word for faithfulness. So the faithful God has a faithful word that he's going to give to a faithful son, Jonah, the son of faithfulness. Here's a faithful servant who's getting a faithful word from a faithful God, and we're going to find out that he's going to take all of that faith to people who are faithless. And that's the stunning shock. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let's look at this word that came to Jonah. It was clear and authoritative. It was expressed clearly. There was no possible way Jonah was going to miss what God was saying. And it is clear, based on who it was coming from, and Jonah's relationship to him as a prophet, that he knew that it wasn't just clear, it was authoritative. There's no mistaking that God wants you to know as he starts the story, I gave a very clear and a very authoritative word to this faithful son, Jonah. It was personal. It was direct. It came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, this faithful God, as we've said, and I want you to hear this a number of times because it's at the heart of the book. A faithful God gives a word of faith to a faithful servant to take to a faithless people. That's at the heart of the book. The God who is faithful to his covenant has a word that is based on his faithfulness. It's a faithful word. He's already been faithful to the covenant he made with David, and he's kept this nation alive, and he's shown mercy to them, just like he promised David, so that no matter what they're doing, he continues to be faithful, and he shows mercy before judgment. And he gives all of this to a faithful son a servant named Jonah. His entire life, Jonah has been faithfully proclaiming God's faithfulness to people who have been acting faithlessly. He's an expert at this. You couldn't pick a better guy. If you wanted to take somebody who was qualified to talk about a faithful God giving a faithful word to faithless people, Jonah had been doing that his whole life. He'd been taking that kind of a word from that kind of a God to God's faithless people for his entire ministry. And now God says to him, I've got a different audience. Same ministry, same word, same scenario, different audience. It is very specific. It is very compelling, this word that comes. Everything that God says to Jonah is stated as a command. Get up. Go. Cry out. It's urgent. Get up now. Go immediately. Go right now. That's the idea. And it's very specific. I want you to go to a particular place, Nineveh, for a particular reason. I want you to cry out against them. I want you to warn them that their great wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh, the great city, was an important city in the ancient world. It was important to Assyria. It certainly was important to Israel based on the fact that they kept rolling their army across the border into the northern kingdom and demanding tribute. You had to pay attention to this nation. And in that nation, Nineveh was one of its massive cities. If you lived in the ancient world 
and you said the word Nineveh, nobody would say, where is that now? Or, or what, what kind of a city is that? Or who are those people? Everybody immediately knew. You can go anywhere in the world, and there are cities like that today. There are important centers where people live that have risen to global consciousness. For example, let me give you, let me give you one of them, Tokyo. Nobody here is like, Tokyo? I've never heard of that. wonder where that is. New York City. Oh, I wonder how big that is. wonder what they do there. San Francisco. Oh, isn't that where they print Bibles? I think there's a lot of churches there. Isn't that the plate? No, 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 actually not. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you, you, there are just cities that rise to the level that everybody on the planet basically knows who those cities are and who lives there and what that city is like. And Nineveh was the Old Testament version of one of those places. And so when God said to Jonah, I want you to get up and I want you to go. And I want you to cry out against the wickedness of that city. Jonah found that word repugnant and unacceptable. God, I, I can't go there. I was fine taking the word of faith and the word of grace and the word of mercy and the word of warning that you called me to give to your people because they're your people. They're covenant people. But now you're wanting me to take that same word of faith and that same word of grace and that same word of mercy and it's all wrapped up in the word of warning that I'm supposed to preach to them and even though he doesn't say anything in chapter 1, we find out what he's thinking in chapter 4. And he's ticked because when he finally gets there and he gets in there and he issues the warning, everybody repents. And Jonah's like, ah, oh, I knew it. He starts stewing. It's like, are you kidding me? And he starts talking to God. This is exactly what I was talking about when I was packing my tent up back in Israel and heading down to Joppa. I knew exactly what you were up to and I didn't want anything to do with it. And I came here and I preached this word of warning and, and I knew exactly what you were up to. That word of warning was going to trigger a response in the king. I didn't know it was going to be the king. I certainly didn't expect the animals. But everybody repented. There's repentance, repentance, repentance everywhere. And I know something about you. When people repent, no judgment. And that was my deal. I'm coming here to bring judgment from you on these people. And, and, and you... Just like I thought you were going to do, you brought stinking mercy. Like, are you kidding me, Jonah? Didn't you just get a boatload of it? Didn't, didn't you just get a whole ocean of it? Yeah, but that was me. I'm part of the covenant. Didn't, didn't, I mean, hasn't this been what God's been doing to Israel all along? Yeah, but, but, you know, we're in the business of mega. God's supposed to be making Israel great again, and this is not part of the plan. Because in showing mercy to these people, you know, I am a prophet, so let me just do a little prophet talk here. You're, you're, you, you guys just don't understand how profiting works around here. When God tells me something, it's going to happen. And God's been telling me and all my prophet buddies that these are the people that are going to come over here and trounce us in about 50 years. 
So if God's going to make Mega happen, if Mega's going to go on around here, then these people have to get off the scene. And the perfect way for God to get them off the scene is to judge them. And you're like, uh, there's a big problem here, and there really is. And if we're honest, that problem may actually be going on in our own lives. There is the receiving of God's word. And then secondly, look at verse 3, there is the resisting of God's will. Jonah listened to the word of God and it was theologically unacceptable. It was morally offensive as he understood the will of God. And then when he thought about the implications of all of this, it was personally repugnant. And so... As he thought about this, he got up very deliberately. It's a deliberate response. Jonah arose. When he heard, when he understood what God wanted, he arose and he went. So far, so good. We don't know the rest of the story. All we know is there's this prophet, and God says to him, like he said, all the other prophets, I want you to go, and here's the word. And Jonah got up, and he went. What we're not expecting is where he went to. And why he went there. He got up, and the text says he he arose, and he fled. He rose to flee. That was his intent. It was deliberate. It was disobedient. God said, I want you to go 500 miles away, Jonah, to the northeast, to the, the nation of Assyria, and to one of the massive city centers there. And Jonah said, very good. And instead, he goes west to the port city of a nation called Phoenicia named Joppa. This is very close to what is modern day Tel Aviv. And so Jonah makes his way down to Joppa and he rents a ship to take him to a place 2,000 miles in the other direction, a place called Tarshish. You say, what's Tarshish? It was the Timbuktu of Jonah's day. You know what Timbuktu is? You're like, uh, I'm not very good with geography. Okay, let me just give you a hint. Timbuktu, think about the furthest place away from where you are, and that's Timbuktu. It doesn't matter if there really is a place like that, but we use that as an expression, and it just means I'm going to go as far away as I can. I'm going to Timbuktu. Or that's, are you kidding me? That's way out in Timbuktu. And that's so Tarshish for Jonah was Timbuktu. He just didn't know it. He called it Tarshish. It was the Timbuktu of his day. And so that's where he headed. And, and this response wasn't just deliberate and it wasn't just disobedient. It was absolutely devastating. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What in the world are you thinking, Jonah? You serve an omniscient God. How do you play hide and seek with an omniscient God? How do you outrun an omnipresent God? And Jonah knew all these things about God. So whatever he's doing in his mind, it's not like he's going to a place where he's going to get away from God. So what does it mean when he leaves the presence of God? Of the Lord. Well, in Jonah's day, God had a physical nation where he rested his presence in a tabernacle. And that nation was Israel. When Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, he left his nation, his, his, his citizenship, he abandoned God's chosen covenant people, and he renounced 
his ministry. He was self-willed, he was self-reliant, he was self-righteous. You can tag Jonah with whatever you want, but God had asked him to do something, and he knew that the thing God asked him to do was going to result in something that was so morally and so personally offensive to him that he was willing to get up and leave. I'm just done. I'm done. So here's the question, how do you justify running from God's work? And that's, a, that's what we see in chapter 1, verse 3. Jonah rose to, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship. He paid the fare. How do you justify all of that when you're Jonah? Well, Jonah justified it theologically. God, what I think you're about to do violates every standard of justice that I know about you and I preached about to your people. God gives mercy to people who deserve it, people who repent, but people who sin wantonly and wickedly like the Ninevites, well, those people deserve judgment. And if God doesn't judge, God, if you don't judge, then you're not just. And at the end of the day, Jonah struggled with the unjustness of what he was pretty sure God wanted to do over at Nineveh. He, he justified it theologically. He justified it politically or nationally. God, you made some obligations to your people. You told David there would always be someone to sit on his throne. You said that this land was going to be ours forever. You said that this was your chosen nation. And, and you've also said that these people are going to come and dispossess us from the land. They're going to, they're going to take us away from here. They're going to judge us. And, and I've been watching the wickedness meter, and I know that their cup is full, and so I was pretty sure you were going to judge them. And for me to find out that you're about to show mercy, that's just not in line with my political and national understandings of your obligation to your people. He justified it morally. A Syrian general, and Nineveh in particular, had been sinning wantonly for years their wickedness and their cruelness and their violence was legendary. I mean, you can still go on the, to the museums where, where murals, wall murals and carvings have been found from Nineveh, actually, and you can see the horrific things that Nineveh did to people and the Assyrians did to their enemies. And they were known on the global scale, uh, uh, scale of, of injustice. These were moral monsters. In other words, how in the world, God, can you in any way show mercy to people who have been this violent and this wicked and caused this much damage to so many people? Israel experienced a taste of that moral monstrosity themselves because Assyria had come on numerous occasions and exacted tribute from people that belonged to Jonah. So Jonah justified it, and then he justified it providentially. He found a ship. When you decide to run from God and abandon God's people, Satan is always ready to buy you a ticket somewhere. He's always got a boat ready, and he's always got a place, any place, any boat. You know, think about this. The fact that Jonah was willing to go to Joppa and rent a ship is actually stunning. The Israelites were not seafaring people. They were land-bound. They were people of the land. 
Jonah went to the very last place a Hebrew prophet would ever go, to the Phoenician city of Joppa. And when he got there, he did the last thing you would expect an Israelite to do. He booked a, he booked a, a tour on a ship. And he wanted out so badly, he was willing to pay whatever it costs. If you know anything about Israelites, that's typically not how they are. He didn't care what it cost. Actually, when you read the text the way that, that it's written, Jonah rented the entire ship, not just a little berth on it. I got to get away from here, and, and I know, and, and I, I can't imagine, use a little sanctified imagination, I can't imagine the con- conversation that was going on, but all of a sudden it's like, well, I, I know I know you got other places, but we got to get to Tarsus, and so I'm willing to just rent the whole shebang. Let me take the whole ship. Well, you know how much it's going to cost? Yeah, I sold everything. I, 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 I sold my, my, my property over in Israel. I'm not going back there. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll pay whatever it costs to get on this boat, and I'll rent the whole ship to go to the other side of the world. And he personally justified it because in his mind, he was the righteous person in this equation. He weighed God in the balances and God was found wanting. You ever do that with God? God does something, brings something in your life. You see something and it is so bothersome to you that you go to God and you're like, God, this, this, is, not, this is not just. Far be it for me to be critical of you, but, but I just know this. This is not just. You say, well, nobody does that except Jonah. Well, Elijah kind of did that, didn't he? Remember Elijah? Predecessor to Jonah. Sees this amazing work that God does through his ministry. And then, you know, Jezebel, instead of getting judged, sends him this threatening letter, and he takes off. And as he takes off, he's ticked. He's like, you know what? I can't I can't win. God, I can't win. I, 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 I went to the brook, like you said, and I, I, I ate the food that that unclean bird kept bringing me. And then you sent me to Zarephath, and I, I hung out with that widow, and I even raised her kid from the dead, just like you said, and I did all that stuff. And for three years, I was as thirsty, and I saw everybody starving, and I put up with all of that because you told me to. And you told me to roll over to Ahab and talk to him, and so I did. And then I went up on the mountain like you told me to, and I rebuilt the altar, I healed the altar, and, and, and I, I did all the stuff he did. And then on top of that, I went after the priests and the prophets personally. And I cleaned up this mess that you could have cleaned up yourself. And here's the thanks I get. Nothing has changed. Jezo is still around doing her thing. And, and you know what? I'm done with this. If you're not going to take care of it, I can't do any more. And off he goes. And God says, all right, all right, go, you know. Hey, get, there's a little bush there. Jonah's going to have a little bush of his own. Elijah, there's a little bush. Go to sleep. And then wake up. There's a feast. And then go to the mountain. And he gets to the mountain. And God has a question for him. Elijah, why are you here? Elijah says, I'll tell you why I'm here. You know why I'm here? You ever have these kind of talks with God? No, pastor, I never do. Not even in my heart. You might have another problem. 
you might need a little more mercy than the other person sitting next to you is going, yeah, I have these conversations all, all, all along. So here's Elijah. Goes, I'm going to tell you why I'm here. You know why I'm here? Because I care. And I'm the only one that cares. I care about your name. I care about your people. I care about your altars. Nobody else seems to care about that. Nobody cares that the altars are down. Nobody cares about what's going on in your people. Nobody cares about your name. Not even someone else in this conversation. There are two of us talking, and only one of us cares, and it's me. You ever felt that way? God, you know, if we're going to talk about just then there are two people in this conversation and we have very different ideas about justice and I seem to be the only one that really cares about it. That's Jonah. Jonah's saying to God, God, if you're not going to be just and if you're not going to be righteous, if you're not going to judge sin like you say you will, if you're not going to do that, then I'm going to be just and I'm going to be righteous and I'm certainly not going to have any part of your unjust plan. And I'm getting on a boat, and I don't care what happens, but somebody in this whole equation has to be righteous. And if you're not going to be righteous, I'm going to be righteous. That's what happens when we put God in our own little scale that we built ourselves, and we weigh him out, and we're like, well, I wouldn't have done that, and that's not what I think it means, and God, you can't do that, and you must do that. And God says, guess what? I'm God. Yahweh doesn't mean Yah you. You're not me. And so here's Jonah, and he gets in a boat because he's wiser than God. And he goes down into the boat because he's more righteous than God. And instead of listening to the Spirit, he ends up in a storm of God's making. In an ocean of pain, without an oar, or even a life ring. And you and I in there, sometimes. Let's look at the last thing in the text. God didn't leave Jonah out in the storm. God rebuked Jonah by his own ways. Jonah may have been through with God, but God was nowhere near being through with Jonah. Jonah may have been running from God, but running with, God was running to Jonah with a boatload of grace and an ocean full of mercy. And while Jonah was silently running away from God's will, God was silently working his plan to get Jonah exactly where he wanted him so that he could experience grace and taste mercy. How did God do this? Well, <clears throat> he sent a storm. Storm was God's instrument of mercy for Jonah. We don't typically think of storms that way, do we? The storm was designed by God, but Yahweh hurled a great wind. You can see its divine origin. God was the author of this storm. He is the designer of the storm. And he creates the storm around Jonah to eventually quiet the theological storm that's going on inside Jonah. It's a fierce an intense storm. God hurls the wind. The idea here is, is what you would see in a warrior taking a spear or a javelin and hurling it with his entire might and, and, and incredible accuracy against an enemy coming against him. And here's God 
the, the God of the heaven and the earth, the God who controls the sea and all that's in it, the God who controls the wind, and he calls the wind and he hurls it like a spear. By means of this storm, Jonah will be brought to the place of desperation. By the time we get to chapter 2, Jonah is desperate. And what he's desperate for is the very thing that he's frustrated God's about to give Nineveh. He needs deliverance. He needs salvation from his trouble. He needs mercy. God uses the storm to get there. The storm is designed by God. It's directed by God. There was a mighty tempest on the sea. And this storm created a whole lot of frantic activity on deck. The sailors rode with all their might. They hurled their own possessions in order to save their life and Jonah's. And then they began praying fervently. Each of them began calling out to their national God or to their personal God. Maybe this was an international crew, but each of them began praying to their individual gods in order to appease whichever God might have been offended and might be the cause of this incredible trouble. And then there's this incredible contrast that you see going on on deck. The pagan sailors are busy praying. The pagan sailors are busy rowing. The pagan sailors are frantic to save everybody's life on that ship. And then there is this prodigal prophet who basically looks at all of this and then he drags his rain-drenched soul down to the bottom of the ship and he finds a bed and he crawls down into that bed and he falls asleep. And that's where the captain found him, snoring away in his sins. And that's where God sometimes has to find us. And that's the last thing you see in this. He was discovered by God. So the captain came and found him. The captain came and said to him, God wasn't about to let Jonah snore his sin away. He sent a probing, pagan, idolatrous captain to wake up his prophet, to confront him with a question. You know, the book is designed around questions. There are commands that God gives, but when he starts dealing with Jonah's soul, God asks questions. And here's the first question. Why are you sleeping? And then there's sort of a repetition of the original command, right? God said to Jonah in verse 1 and 2, Arise! Go and cry out. And now here's this pagan captain telling him the same thing. Get up and talk to God. It's the one thing Jonah wasn't doing. It's like, I'm not talking to him right now. And the captain's like, well, well, actually, we actually need you to. We're desperate. I don't know who you are. I don't know who your God is. But right now we're all talking to our gods and nobody is excluded because we are desperate for help. No matter who we are, or where we come from, or what we've done, we all are on the same boat, and we need the same thing. We need rescuing, we need deliverance, and we need mercy. So whoever you are, I don't have a clue why you're down here sleeping, but you need to get up and start talking to your God. You see the irony of this? That captain had no idea who Jonah was. You're like, good call, Cap. That dude that's down there sleeping, you're talking to the right guy. Because his God is actually the God who made everything, including the ocean and including the storm. 
captain doesn't know any of this yet. Now, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, the captain's going to know it. But he doesn't know any of it yet. All he knows is that there's this guy down there, rain-drenched, sleeping away in a pallet, while everybody else is upstairs on deck, frantically working and fervently praying. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, why are you sleeping? Get up. Talk to your God for us. You know, sometimes God has to send a probing pagan into our own lives. You might be on a plane somewhere and you're ticked at God and you and God aren't talking because of this happened in your marriage or that happened over here and that disease came and, and destroyed this or you lost this job or somebody did this and God hasn't done a thing about it. And so it's been a while since you talked to God. And God sends his desperate pagan next to you and, and, and you're like, you know, you got your headphones on and you got your book out and you're signaling, not talking, not talking, not talking. And, the, and that person says, hey, can I just, you know, um, I don't know if you pray or not, but can you just pray for me right now? I'm terrified of flying. You're like, actually, God and I aren't talking right now. How do you tell a pagan that? No. God and I aren't talking. Oh, are you an atheist? Well, no, no, I'm not an atheist. I'm actually a Christian. Well, talk to your God for me because I don't want to go down in this mess. Well, we can't talk right now because we're not, we're not talking. Well, can you at least hold my hand? No, can't hold your hand. You know, because I'm like doing this and it's not working. You ever seen people on a plane do this? They're like, you know, they're, I mean, and then they get their little beads out and they're running them hot because they're in this turbulence and they're looking next to you and you're going, can you talk to God? And you're like, we're not talking. I already told you that. We're not talking. You know, it's one of the most uncomfortable places to be, isn't it? That's where Jonah was. And we're going to pick the story up next week as God begins to talk to Jonah through the sailors. But let me ask you some questions as we end. You know, Jonah, I mean, we just call these lessons for life. Jonah didn't understand the plan of God, and that's what messed him up. And so question number one for you is this. How do you know if you're Jonah? Here's how. Am I willing to accept the word of God even when it doesn't make sense? And because Jonah didn't understand God, he mistrusted God. Are are you willing to trust God even when you don't understand or like his plan? Because Jonah didn't trust God, he disregarded God's word and he disobeyed God's will. Are you willing to obey God? And do whatever he's asked you to do even if you don't agree with it? Jonah's disobedience led him to distance himself from God and from God's people and from God's ministry. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever distanced yourself from God? Have you ever walked away from his people? Have you ever stopped serving God because you were ticked at God? Jonah's disobedience made him silent before God and comfortable in his sinful resistance. Have you made an uncomfortable peace with some area of resistance to God in your own life? And then Jonah's disobedience displeased God damaged Jonah, and endangered others. Here's my question for me. Have I judged God in my own balance and found him wanting? Have I become more righteous than God in my actions and in my attitudes? And have I become wiser than God in my own eyes? You know, the more of those questions that we have to answer honestly, 
the more we begin to realize we're not that different than Jonah. We're just not that different. And the same scandalous grace that God kept showing to Israel and that he wanted to show to Nineveh is the very grace that Jonah is about to taste himself again. And it's the same scandalous grace that you can taste this morning if you're where Jonah is. I don't, I don't know what's going on in all of your lives any more than you know what's going on in my life, but I do know this. We are all in the same boat. And we all need the same grace. And God sometimes has to make us thirsty for mercy. So if you're thirsty for mercy this morning, can I suggest something to you? Break the silence. Silence isn't always golden. Break the silence and start talking to God and start saying to God, you and I have a big struggle and I'm a big part of it. In fact, I'm probably all of it and I'm just coming to you and I'm just saying, God, I I don't understand this. I'm just being honest. I don't like this. It doesn't make any sense to me. But, but I'm going to stop trying to be God. And I, I just need mercy. And I need grace. And if you're going to show it to your people in the past, and if you're going to show it to these people, can you give me a drink of the same mercy? And God won't just give you a drink. He'll cause it to well up in you. Like a spring that never ends. Because we do have a wonderful merciful Savior, and he wants to save you. Lord, thank you for this brief paragraph that opens this amazing book. We're excited to see the work that you're going to do in Jonah. We're a little frightened at times about the work that you may want to do in us. But Lord, we want that work to happen. Lord, we're thankful that we live in a country where we can celebrate and worship freely. We're thankful that uh, in the providence of God, you have placed us here, and we do want to pray for our country. We want to pray for its leaders. But even more than that, we want to pray for all the countries of the world that they would express and experience, rather, the mercy that you intend to give them through the gospel. And so, Lord, send us, not just around the world, but across the street and maybe even into our own house with a word of mercy. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.